Welcome to the Montgomery Community Church Podcast. Thank you so much for listening today. We hope this message encourages you and inspires you to grow deeper in your faith. If you'd like to learn more about MCC, you can visit our website at mcc.church. awesome to be here with you this morning as we continue in this series, Why I Believe. We've done this series because I think it's important to know why we believe what we believe. Because many times we hold certain things in our minds, we've never really examined them. And when we hear different things, it's easy for us then just to kind of agree with other things. We haven't identified why we believe what we believe. And so it's an important matter. And so today we're going to talk about marriage. And as I I do so, I just want to kind of highlight a few things. If you are a note taker, get an extra pen today. It might be helpful for you. And if you have your phones with you, I encourage you to get those armed and ready because I'm going to be providing a variety of resources depending upon the subject at hand. And you might want to capture that QR code and then go home and read more on that particular subject because, uh, you know, it's, it's a deep subject. And so it takes a little bit more time. I also want to encourage you to listen to the entirety of the message. Due to the culture in which we live, uh, people often hear things that aren't being said. Sometimes our defenses go up really quickly, and uh, people get angry when that's not really what is being said. So I encourage you to hang with me all the way through the very end as we talk about what Jesus really has to say about marriage. Marriage, of course, has been highly esteemed. And it's been highly regarded and sought after for thousands of years. I mean, that's why family members would travel for hundreds, even thousands of miles to attend the wedding of a cousin, a niece, or a nephew due to the significance of the event. And many people have done so through the ages, whether they realize it or not, because they were supporting a value that scripture has long stated, hold marriage in high esteem. Hold marriage in high esteem. So marriage is not to be taken lightly or viewed unimportantly. It's to be held in high esteem. And yet due to the culture in which we live, marriage is not viewed with the kind of reverence or respect it once enjoyed. In fact, many now wonder if marriage is essential or if marriage is even needed. And so it's against this backdrop of differing views and levels of respect that I want to talk today about why I believe in biblical marriage. And as we do so, it's important to grapple with this question. What does it look like then to hold marriage in high esteem? Well, to answer that question best, I think we do need to look to Jesus. Because as a Christian, everything I believe, say, or do is linked directly to him since I follow him. And I hope the same is true for you here and you online. So let's take a look at Jesus. Because one day when Jesus was traveling to the other side of the Jordan... Some religious leaders approached him with what they believed to be a really kind of a trick question regarding the sometimes tragic ending of a marriage, divorce. Well, instead of taking the bait, Jesus responded by pointing them to God's beautiful design. He asked them, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female. Now I want to pause here for a moment to address the clarity in which Jesus spoke here. Jesus clearly stated that in the beginning, God made human beings in such a way that they were either male or female. And Jesus was talking here about how humans were made before the fall, before the world had been corrupted by sin. 
Since now we live in this imperfect world, there are now rare occasions, but they are, uh, they are there, where babies are born intersex. Uh, doctors would look at a newborn baby and not be sure exactly if they were male or female. In fact, the medical world tells us that one in 1,000 babies are born this way. Many theologians believe Jesus actually mentions this matter just a few verses later in Matthew 19, 12. I encourage you to check that out when you get home. But this is important that we stop here and talk about this because it's, it's personal to me. When we lived in Holland, Michigan, my best friend was struggling through a period of time like for a year. And I kept meeting with him and he would just cry. I mean, he couldn't tell me. I mean, it was deep for him. And after a long while of meeting together, he finally revealed to me that he had been born this way. And that when he was very young, his parents made a decision to have an operation for him that made him male. And he'd been struggling with that ever since. And so if this applies to you at all, please know that you're loved by God you're loved by this church. You're loved. So Jesus, he described how God desired human beings to be born before the fall. And yet even now after the fall, we know that 99.999% of every child born is either male or female. Theologically, this is true. Biologically, this is true. That God designed us slightly different from one another to complement one another. And even so, the shifting views regarding gender have caused a lot of confusion, a lot of hurt, and a lot of debate in our culture. One father, recently I heard him say it this way, he said, this is all so confusing. I was struggling with how to talk to my kid about the birds and the bees. Now I have to talk to him about the bees and the bees and how the bird wants to be a bee. It's confusing. It's difficult. I'll say it again, that God designed us different from one another in order to complement one another. Any other view of one's gender identity might be embraced by the shifting winds of culture, but it runs contrary to how God made us when we were born, male or female. But friends, when you think about it, this is nothing new, really. God made us to love him, but we often don't. God made us to love each other, but we often struggle to even love ourselves. And God made us to glorify him, but we often place ourselves in the spotlight. There are many ways in which God made us to live that we don't fully embrace or embrace at all. Yet even so, just because something is currently normative in society or held in high regard by society doesn't make it right. Our heart's desire, all of us, should be to seek ways to operate consistently within the matter in which God designed us. And as I say this, there is a different response by some, and some Christians. And, and here's how it looks. And it's often spoken by some who even you know, mean well with this based on what they've heard before. It looks something like this. That if Christians could just understand that Jesus limited the scope of marriage as being between a male and a female because no other form of marriage existed before Jesus walked this earth or around the time he walked this earth, well, then we would all be on the same page. We would be in full agreement. Now, I want you to think about this statement for just a moment. It's a statement that says Jesus couldn't address a different kind of marital union because he had no idea that another form of committed union could be possible. It's basically a statement that says Christ's teachings were limited because his knowledge and wisdom were limited. 
Such a statement undermines both Christ's knowledge but also his divinity. So let's start with Christ's knowledge first. Jesus was a rabbi, of course. And any rabbi back then was not only well-educated in the scriptures, but also in the events surrounding when those scriptures were written. And we know that there is an ancient Jewish text known as Sifra, S-I-F-R-A. It was a commentary in the Old Testament book, Leviticus. This is a Jewish word. And in Leviticus, the Jewish people are instructed in this way. Do not perform the practice of the land of Egypt in which you dwelled, and do not perform the practice of the land of Canaan to which I bring you, and do not follow their decrees. So they're coming from Egypt, of course. They were slaves in Egypt, so don't follow their ways, their decrees, how they live, and don't follow the ways of those who live in Canaan either when you get there. Because they're both practicing the same thing. And people go, what were they practicing that the Jewish people weren't to do? Well, Sifra answers this question for us. And it says, and I quote, and what did they do? A man would marry a man, and a woman would marry a woman. So Jesus is a rabbi. He wasn't, you know, unaware. He was well informed regarding marriages that existed throughout time. And he wasn't uninformed of others have tried to postulate. And it's also important, I think, to remember that the Roman world in which Jesus lived, uh, tell you what, was much more extreme than what you and I could possibly imagine. For example, the sexual exploits practiced publicly, and I say out in the open, in Caesarea Philippi would result in arrest and jail time for anyone today. In fact, I can't even describe the things that happened there because some of you would be angry that I would even voice this, but it was a reality there. And this would explain why just 20 years after Christ died and rose again, the Roman emperor Nero married a boy in a traditional wedding ceremony. Even in our culture, a man marrying a boy would not only land him on the news, it would land him in prison. So friends, we should not be confused about the culture in which Jesus lived. And we should also know that if Jesus had wanted to bless any other kind of committed marriage arrangement, he would have done so. Instead, Jesus blessed only the kind of marriage that his father blesses because as part of the Godhead, he designed marriage in a particular way. So while marriage has redefined, you know, and culture has redefined marriage throughout time, this is nothing new that we're living in. Throughout time, this has been done. Under God, marriage has always remained consistent. One man, one woman in holy matrimony. So one purpose of biblical marriage is to marry according to God's design. And when we celebrate marriage in this way, well, we hold marriage in high esteem. That's why Jesus continued. And he asked, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So here Jesus restates the difference that exists between a couple by referring to them as two Two different kinds of complementary people who, when after they are married, become one. One flesh. And what is the significance? Well, the couple is now emotionally one. They are one spiritually. They are one financially. They are one relationally. If you'd like to explore more about this when you get home, I encourage you to check out this resource on being married, what it means, what God's word has to say about it. There are other books and resources there as well. I encourage you to check that out. So what is the outcome then of this one flesh? 
to an outcome that can only be experienced when two complementary human beings are united together. The possibility of biologically born children. The Bible tells us that children are a treasure from the Lord. They're a treasure from the Lord. They are. In fact, this is at the heart of what we've seen over the past few days, the Supreme Court ruling that overturned Roe versus Wade. It's been gaining a lot of attention. And here's what I want to say about it. I don't have time to go into that now, but think about this. Since this ruling brings only a change of direction and not an end to the debate over abortion, may we as Christians continue to pray that the Lord's will be done and that Christians who engage in these matters represent Jesus well in this very divided culture. Otherwise, the masses will coalesce around their offense and not the issue at hand. So may we live as Paul really has said that we should live, that we would clothe ourselves with compassion and kindness and humility, gentleness and patience. Back to our conversation. The Bible tells us that having children is one possible outcome of being married and becoming one flesh. Now, let me talk briefly about what that doesn't mean. This doesn't mean that a married couple is required to have children. It doesn't mean that a married couple somehow falls short if they don't. In fact, there are times married couples will choose not to have children. For example, economic challenges. They can't afford it right now. Or I've heard couples tell me, you know what, the culture in which we live, I don't want to raise children in this, and so they choose not to. And then, of course, sometimes, due to our imperfect world, a couple is unable to have children. And this is an incredibly painful journey for a couple who truly wants to have children. And if this is you, if you're struggling with this right now, we're here for you. We'd love to talk with you, meet with you. We have a care ministry. I'd love to pray with you. But also, I encourage you to check out this resource on the side screens, Facing Infertility. I think you'll find it to be a helpful resource for you. And then, of course, sometimes due to infertility or a call that a couple might feel upon their marriage, they will adopt children. And that's such an incredible act of love and devotion. And if this is something you've ever thought about or you're considering right now, I encourage you to check out this resource on the side screens, Adoption, Foster, and Support. It'll be helpful. So while not having children can be an option that some couples choose or experience, this was not a choice for Adam and Eve. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. So after creating humans as male and female, God told them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. So the purpose in a biblical marriage is to marry according to God's design, marry to become one flesh, unified as only a male and female can be, marry so a biological family might be possible. In these ways, friends, we hold marriage in high esteem. And with this insight, Jesus went on to say, therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And so the purpose of biblical marriage is also a lifetime commitment. This is God's desire for every marriage. And it's also the desire of every couple who ever gets married. And that's why some here today, you celebrated one year of marriage, or five years of marriage, or 25 years of marriage, or 50 years of marriage. I celebrate with you. Yet there are those who experience something different, the pain of a difficult marriage. Some of you know what I'm talking about. It's a marriage where you live in the same house but feel desperately alone. It's a marriage where arguments and disagreements are not occasional but normative. 
It's a marriage where sometimes you hardly speak at all. Your home is so incredibly, painfully silent. That kind of season of marriage is so difficult, friends. We're here for you. Again, we have a care ministry. We have prayer partners afterwards that long to pray with you. But I also have this resource for you as well. It's called Difficult Marriage. And I think you'll find uh, some of the words there and the resources there very, very helpful for you at this particular time. And if you're struggling with a difficult marriage, I encourage you to get in the game here because many times couples wait way too long and sometimes what I have seen, only one of the spouses actually tries to make the marriage work. The other is just kind of doing their thing. And when that happens, it often leads to separation or divorce. A divorce, it's just downright painful. It hurts not only the couple, but the families. I mean, it just, it hurts. I think it's important to understand that the Bible permits divorce for a few different reasons. When one marriage partner commits adultery, unfaithfulness in the marriage by sleeping with another. Uh, when this is the case, though, the Bible doesn't mandate divorce. Forgiveness and reconciliation should always be pursued. And yet there are times, and I've seen it, where the person who's been wrong, the damage just is beyond repair for them. They can't seem to move on, and so divorce is a result. The Bible also permits divorce when one marriage partner abandons the marriage. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 7. And Christians have often kind of viewed abandonment in kind of different ways, but most of the time they would say this, that when one spouse leaves the other spouse and children behind without any kind of financial support, it's a clear case of abandonment. When one spouse becomes a Christian and the other partner wants no part of that you know, faith or an ongoing relationship, this is a clear case of abandonment. And when one spouse physically or sexually abuses the other spouse, this most certainly can be a case for abandonment. Such situations need to be addressed wisely and with a great amount of compassion. That's why Jesus spoke about the reality of divorce. He said this, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. In the beginning, sin had not yet entered this world. But when Adam and Eve, of course, tried to be like God rather than submit to God, sin became a reality for all of us. And so while divorce is not anyone's desire, it can be a painful result. And if this applies to you, and you're going through the pain of that right now, God sees you, he knows you, he values you. I encourage you to come up after the service and the prayer partners will pray with you. We'd like to walk a journey with you because we want you to feel whole again and healed so the purpose of biblical marriage is to marry according to God's design, marry in order to become one flesh, marry so a biological family might be possible, and then marry for a lifetime commitment. And all these work together to hold marriage in high esteem. And yet there's one thing more the Bible talks about. Because after God created humankind and commanded them to marry, be fruitful, and multiply, he said, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So another purpose of biblical marriage is companionship and partnership. That together as husband and wife, a couple is to work together, have fun together, lead together, because marriage is a partnership. Now, when it comes to those who are seeking marriage or those sometimes in the marriage themselves, I've often heard couples say things like, you know what, I have my money, she has hers. Or this is my truck, that's her car. I do this, she does that. 
Certainly there's room for individuality within the marriage. Yet there must also remain a constant focus on partnership because this is what God intended. In fact, the more a couple talks about how many things are mine, his, or hers, the greater chance that individuality will become the norm, which leads to individualism and separation. Friends, marriage has been designed by God to be a beautiful, powerful, unifying partnership. And when that partnership is modeled beautifully and powerfully before others, they have embodied how to hold marriage in high esteem. And this now brings us to the second part of that verse, uh, because when it's not kept, it opens the doorway for devaluation. It says, hold marriage in high esteem, all of you, and keep the marriage bed pure, because God will judge those who commit sexual sins. Well, adultery would be one of those sexual sins. But the Bible is also talking about the various winds of culture that would undermine God's original design and how we should pursue making and keeping a marriage commitment. And so the first wind of culture I want to talk about is the wind of fluidity. Fluidity. When you hear that word, what comes to mind? I mean, for some, it means this, the ability of a substance to flow easily. Kind of like water in a river. It can easily get from here to there. For others, fluidity means this. Someone who moves with great elegance and grace. Like me on the dance floor, for example. Elegance and grace. Right, honey? Yes. Um, and still for others, it means something far different. One professor in psychology was considered an expert in this subject who wrote the book Sexual Fluidity. Understanding women's love and desire defines fluidity in this way. The capacity for change in sexual attraction, depending on changes in situational or environmental or relationship conditions. And so this signifies that one's attraction and or commitment to a person of one gender today could change significantly by the following week, the following month, or maybe even tomorrow. Some say this can result because someone adopts the mindset of to total open-mindedness concerning what love means. Some would say that when someone has experienced abuse or pain from one gender, it opens the door maybe for another. Or when someone has become confused through the changing gender roles in society, they might explore this. I remember one young man out there a couple years ago telling me that he had. And he said, never again. Or that someone has rejected traditional marriage due to harsh or unfair treatment in that marriage, and so now they're interested in maybe other options. These are just some of the reasons that people give, friends. And we must know that this shift that I'm talking about is not just taking place on the shores of California. It's rooted in our everyday society. I say this because just recently I went to the hospital, and I'm filling out the form that they gave me. And at the top of the form, my top choices were male, female, male fluid, female fluid. And while I was waiting there, Johnny Depp was on the news again. I know that's kind of faded now. His marriage, as you know, was not only on the rocks, they were like suing each other. Well, for years before his court case took place, Johnny's daughter, an actor in her own right, she said, you don't have to label your sexuality so many kids these days are not labeling their sexuality, and I think that's so cool. Lily Rose represents some, and I mean just some, of those who are now part of Generation Z. Generation Z is loosely defined as anyone born between the mid-1990s and the mid-2000s. 
One man, a proponent of fluidity, he said this, that for Gen Zers, fluidity isn't reactionary like it was and still is for millennials. Now it's closer to the norm. But friends, this doesn't just apply to some within Generation Z. It's much further reaching than that. You might recognize the name Cynthia Nixon. She became famous for her role in Sex and the City. Well, several years later, she was also known for leaving her long-term partner and father of her children in order to marry a woman. As she reflected on this, she said, in terms of sexual orientation, I don't really feel I've changed. I don't feel there was a hidden part of my sexuality that I wasn't aware of. I've been with men all my life, and I've never fallen in love with a woman. But when I did, it didn't seem so strange. I'm just a woman in love with another woman. Friends, fluidity is on the rise. And along with fluidity has come a decrease, though, in something else. Those would seek the bonds of biblical marriage. After all, when you think about it, it's hard to commit to just one type of person when you may be attracted to a very different kind of person by the time you wake up the very next morning. Friends, in light of this, may we all hold marriage in high esteem. Another cultural wind that is blowing quite significantly, and if you're parents here, you should know this if you don't already, it's called bedroom compatibility. Bedroom compatibility. You see, the dating world has shifted significantly over the past decade or so. What am I talking about? Well, what happens on a first date is largely shift to perhaps a quick kiss at the end of the night to so much more. One popular magazine stated it this way. If you're feeling the chemistry at the end of the night, go for it and blank what anyone else thinks. Exploring bedroom compatibility from the start can help you determine whether you want to actually invest in a relationship with this person. So just in case you missed it, allow me to clarify what this article and many others are now saying. When you go on a first date, sleep with that person, and then you can determine if they are compatible with your expectations or desires. If they are, well, then you might date them a second or third time to just learn more about who that person actually is. And this has become common with the aid of various dating apps that are offered for a fee. As a result, what we see is that many young women and men have had or will have numerous sexual partners which may or may not lead to any kind of future committed relationship. It's rooted in a lie that says sexual intimacy leads to emotional intimacy. Friends, it doesn't. Emotional intimacy is what makes a marriage last. And even so, a recent Pew Research study revealed that 18% of Christian singles, 18% of Christian singles believes it is always or sometimes acceptable to date one person while sleeping around with others. This, of course, infers that a much higher percentage are already sleeping with the person that they're dating. Friends, in the minds of many, it's a lot more fun to seek bedroom compatibility with this person or that person or multiple people. Friends, it's a confusing world out there. And if you're in the dating scene right now, I just encourage you just to consider this verse for a moment. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. The truth that God not only made you to be unique, he made you incredibly special. So when God looks at you, he sees you as a treasure. Do you see yourself this way? I pray you do, because that's exactly who you are. 
And since you are a treasure, please always remember that treasures are cherished, treasures are nourished, treasures are protected, and treasures are not given away quickly. Yet our culture says if you're feeling the chemistry at the end of the night, go for it and blank what anyone else thinks. But I would ask, what is a person really going for when they go for it? They're going for an experience they hope will benefit them. Them. Remember, you're more than just an experience. You're more than what you can casually get from some other person you don't really even really know. You are a treasure. Don't forget who you are. If you're in the dating world, I encourage you to check out this resource, Dating 101. I think you're going to find it to be very helpful. I encourage you to check that out. You see, marriage is an incredibly special relationship designed by God so you can experience so much of what God has for you. So may we all hold marriage in high esteem. I'm going to talk real quickly to those who are kind of exploring or maybe you're in what you might call the middle option. You know, you're not dating, but you're not married. You're living together. And the idea out there is if you can live together, you can really get to know the person that they're actually going to work for you, and then you can eventually marry them because you've stepped through that. But studies still show, secular studies still show, that couples who live together experience a higher divorce rate than all the other couples that are out there. We've got to be careful, friends. And I encourage you to check out this resource if you'd like to explore more. It's called Living Together. So friends, there is fluidity, bedroom compatibility, and this leads to yet another cultural wind that is blowing in our world today. And friends, this gust of wind has been impacting some couples who've already chosen to be married. They're in a marriage relationship right now. They're just wondering if there are others out there that are more compatible for them. And so they don't want to cheat on their spouse, and so they pursue a different kind of relationship with their spouse. Recently, someone I know announced to his wife, I don't believe in marriage anymore. He wasn't just talking about his marriage. He was talking about marriage as we've kind of defined it. And he's saying, I don't believe in that. What he was seeking is what's commonly known now as an open marriage. The experts out there refer to it as ethical non-monogamy. Ethical non-monogamy. Just to clarify, such relationships, they're built on the notion that the person they're married to might be wonderful but they're insufficient to meet all their needs. So other partners are pursued, but with the marriage partner's acceptance, approval, and support. And that's why this wind of culture refers to such arrangements as being ethical, because you're not going behind someone's back. And it's not just non-Christians who are pursuing these kind of relationships. Some Christian couples, and because of what I do, I know that some Christian couples are pursuing these kind of arrangements as well. In fact, according to various studies that are happening today, somewhere around 9% of marriages in our culture now and in our country have been exploring what an open marriage might mean for them. Yet may we never forget that God identifies a biblical union as being one flesh. He says the two become one, not the three or not the four. The two become one. If you've been considering this kind of arrangement in your own marriage, I ask you to consider what a friend of mine has learned herself and sometimes shares with others. She said, if you find your spouse to be insufficient to meet all your needs perfectly, good. We will never be made whole by another human being. And we'll never be able to be another person's everything. So if you're missing something in your marriage, maybe you're trying to get a person to complete what only God can. I think she's right. 
And as for my other friend, he didn't get his partner's approval. He's now out in the world exploring his options on his own. In response to this wind of culture, friends, may we all hold marriage in high esteem. May we. Now, I've said a lot here. So if you or someone you know is in a relationship or sexual identity that doesn't align with what I've been talking here today, I want you to know this doesn't mean we don't love you. I want you to know that we don't look down on you. We don't think less of you. We are all on a journey, and hopefully we're on a journey to be more like Jesus. Our heart here is that we would know him together, that we'd experience his love and his grace rather than you feeling any shame cast on you. You see, we believe in sharing the truth of God's word in love, but we also believe that we are all sinners in need of Jesus, and we want you to be on this journey with us. This journey includes how we value and esteem marriage. Because, see, marriage was not designed to serve as an end to itself. Rather, it was designed to be a beautiful picture of Christ's love for his followers, the universal church. And that's why in scripture, we, those who follow him, are referred to as Christ's bride. And Jesus is referred to as the bridegroom. He's saying, be in a marriage like this, where Jesus, of course, he loves us. He is committed to us. He is selfless. He is serving. And therefore, we respond accordingly. Be in a marriage like that. As Paul wrote, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So it's against this backdrop of fluidity, exploring bedroom compatibility, and ethical non-monogamy that I want to state with all sincerity why I believe in biblical marriage. Biblical marriage was designed by God to glorify God by embodying Christ's love for his church. So may we all hold marriage in high esteem. If you're here today and you're struggling, maybe with this or some other matter, I want to encourage you after the service is done, we, we want to just help you come alongside you. There'll be prayer partners down front after I excuse people in just a few moments. Please avail yourself of that opportunity because we love you. We care for you. We want the best for you. Will you pray with me? Dear Father, you know we live in a very complex world. It's getting more confusing and it seems more divided all the time. And Lord, here in this place, as a result of where we live and what's going on in our culture, there are various hurts and wounds, frustrations. You are the great healer. And so God, I pray that you'd meet each person at the point of their deepest need. And I pray that you'd help us all, Lord, to, to follow you, Jesus, that we would follow you. Jesus, you laid out for us what relationships should look like, what that commitment means, what that level of love means. Help us to truly love. Help us to follow you. And Lord, as we do, may we honor you in our relationships with one another, not just as friends, which is a wonderful thing, and as family, but as partners. Lord, may your will be done. And Lord, do your work in us. Call us, draw us closer and closer to yourself so that we might honor you more and more with our lives and as Christians in our world. We pray this, Lord, in your name. Amen. Will you stand with me? Brothers, sisters, in Jesus Christ, called by his name, we are family. 
And therefore, as you go, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. For you were once darkness, but that's not who you are now. You are light in the Lord. So as you go now into your world, into your work, into your neighborhoods, live as children of the light. Glorify him with your words, with your actions, and you will draw Jesus, and you'll draw others to Jesus in their lives. I pray that is true for all of us, for myself as well. So live as light, because you are children of the light. Go change our world for his name. See you next weekend. Thanks for listening. You can stay connected throughout the week by following Montgomery Community Church on Facebook and Instagram. For more information about MCC, visit our website at mcc.church.